but I want to share with you and look at with you the betrayal associated with the cross. Because it's, it's just shrouded in betrayal. There's a betrayal of Peter, which you just heard about. We know about the betrayal of Peter. We know about the other betrayal, the chief betrayal that led to the execution of Jesus, the betrayal of Judas. But beyond that, there's a third betrayal, a larger one. It's the betrayal by... Pardon? Well, yes, I wasn't even thinking of Pilate, but Pilate certainly. And I'm thinking even beyond that, to the crowd. What did this crowd do just a week earlier to Jesus? Palm Sunday. Okay? They welcomed him. And here they are. And we have to assume the very same people that welcomed him with celebrations of Hosanna, save us from God's wrath are now yelling, crucify him. So we're going to look at the betrayals. There's three of them. I'll try and be brief. I'll just give you three headings. Uh, the first one is this, the betrayal by Judas. Okay. So when Jesus had finished praying, he left with his disciples. You might help if you've got a Bible. I haven't put anything on the screen today, only because I just wanted to create a different uh, mood here. Uh, if you've got a Bible, it'd be helpful for you to follow. Uh, uh, I wonder if someone sitting near the back could just distribute uh, some of our church Bibles. Uh, Ali, would you mind? Thank you. Uh, and you. You can use your iPhones or whatever, but it may help you to follow these verses. We're in John 18, and there'll be John 19 at the end. If you just put your hand up to indicate you'd like a Bible, we can get one to you. So Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. His perhaps left the place of prayer, maybe the city. He crosses this intermittent uh, stream, rather like uh, the torrents. Some people call that a creek. It's certainly intermittent. Uh, uh, and so this Kidron Valley, this, this little creek, this river, uh, separates the, the mountain from where Jesus is. They cross over together. They enter an olive grove. It's an enclosed olive grove which therefore means there's only uh, limited access. In verse 2, so John 18, John chapter 18, so you've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. Chapter 18, and now verse 2, we're told that Judas knew the place. Jesus has obviously been there several times with his disciples, but Jesus going to the place that Judas knew of, remember, what did he do at the, at the meal, the communion meal, when he knew Judas was going to betray him? He... He says, go and do what you must do. So Jesus entering this enclosed environment at night, away from the crowd, was setting in place. Can you see? Setting in motion what? What was he doing by entering that enclosed, vulnerable? He's deaf. Let's understand this. That Jesus is not a victim in the sense he was apprehended. By, by people that were more powerful than him. No, no. He, he sets the thing in motion. By entering that garden, he knew that he was vulnerable to capture where people and the crowd weren't able to rescue him. So this is his hour. John speaks about it constantly throughout his gospel, about his hour. It's the hour of his betrayal and death. Verse 3, the Judas therefore comes, knowing full well where Jesus will be. It brings a detachment of soldiers. 
So the betrayer comes, and here's the bewildering thing. It's one of the 12. It's one of the ones who, who witnessed all of Jesus' miracles. And we're not talking about backache, which no one can measure. You know, I'm always dubious of backache healings. You know, who can measure that? No, this is, this is real stuff, okay? Limbs growing back, you know, that's visible, okay? We're talking about eyes being recreated. We're talking about, you know, people who are rotting in graves, flesh, you know, gone, eaten by worms. We're talking about that kind of miracle, the real stuff, okay? He saw that. He heard everything Jesus taught, not just publicly, but privately. And he did. What did he do? What would Judas have done in those three years? At least at the moments that Jesus sent out the 12 and the 72. What would Jesus have, Judas have done? He was witness to it more, even more. There's something even more. What would he have done personally when Jesus sent him on errands into towns? He would have preached. He would have preached Jesus' words. And what else? Even more uh, he, he looked after the money, but what would he have done even more? What would he, Jesus have done as when Jesus sent him out on missions? He would have healed, driven out the uh, demons. He did what Jesus did. He went out with the, with the others, the 11. And so here's the man who's been on the very inner circle of Jesus' companions, who've witnessed him, not from afar, but close up who could see the detail of Jesus. He betrayed him. He's betraying Jesus. So Judas came to the olive grove and led with him a band of men who were under orders to arrest Jesus. We're told in verse 4, four that they came. Jesus knew what was going to happen and asked, who is it you want? They replied, Jesus of Nazareth. Remember, this is the age of not iPhones and TV. You know, very few people knew what he looked like. At least amongst the soldiers here and some of these are Roman soldiers. And so he replies, it's, it's his word. We, we get it from the Aramaic into Greek into English. I am. That's originally how in Hebrew, who revealed himself? In, in, in this phraseology, who? The Almighty Yahweh, translated Jehovah, uh, uh, as we may understand it. And here is Jesus using the very same wording, I am. And it's meant to demonstrate that he is God, that this betrayal, this arrest, uh, the motion of the wheels leading to an execution is of our God. This is an incomprehensible reality taking place. And when they hear him speak, we can only assume it's because of the awe of his words. We do understand, don't we, that Jesus' words are incredibly powerful. Let me ask you, what do those words do accomplish at the very beginning of time? They, 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 they put together, assemble the universe. They were his words that spoke 
let there be light. It was his words that spoke to a corpse rotting in a dungeon for four days. And at his words, what happened to matter? Matter reconstituted itself. And so it's little wonder, is it, when he says, I am God, that they, that they, they fall back in awe. I, don't mean, I think this is something supernatural, powerful, the voice of God. And, 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 and there's a reaction. Perhaps it was involuntary. No one really knew why. But this is the voice that commands the stars into existence. And he speaks, I am. And there's this awe of falling back before God. It's a reminder, friends, that one day we will hear his voice. Whether we're rotting in a dungeon, in a grave, we will hear his voice. What will be the response of dead people rotting in a billion pieces, what will be their response to Jesus' voice? They will hear. Bodies will reassemble. Souls will be revived. And this time we won't fall back. We will stand, says the Bible, in the very presence of God to give an account for our lives. In verse 8, we're told that Jesus says, look, I am, I'm he. You're looking for me. Let these go. And we're told that this has happened so that the prophecy is fulfilled, that none of Jesus' disciples, except for Judas, of course, would be lost. Jesus is, is stepping into words that were spoken centuries earlier, unfolding. These wheels that are in motion are of words that were spoken hundreds of years previously, now unraveling. And one of those is that Jesus loses none of those that are his. He's, he's not just protect, saving them from immediate arrest and apprehension and possible death. What are his actions ultimately saving them from? From damnation. From God's wrath. And so, so here he is, is, is acting on their behalf, not just by telling the authorities to let them go, but he's acting on their behalf by submitting himself to this process of death. We're told in verse 10 that Peter, the, the charismatic one, uh, struck out uh, and took off the high priest's servancy, and Jesus rebukes him. He commands Peter, put away your sword, Christianity is not a religion that has progressed in history, in antiquity, by force. There are blips in Catholicism particularly uh, when there was an element of that. But that is not how Christianity began or advanced. It's not a religion of the sword. It's a religion where the heart is wooed, won over. Transforms and so Pete, Jesus insists that Peter put away his sword. And so we see, friends, in these early verses, something of the betrayal of Jesus by one who was closest to him. Let me move on from Judas to Peter. At the end of this point, I'm going to call up Pippa. Uh, but let me just let's, let's just enter into the betrayal of Peter. In verse 12, we're told that a detachment of soldiers with his commander and the Jewish officials arrest Jesus 
So this is Jesus uh, giving in, surrendering himself. And they brought him first to Annas. Okay. He's the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest. That he, uh, they, they bring him hurriedly. You have to see, this is in the early hours of the night, the early hours of the morning now, okay? Jesus has, has reenacted the communion meal. He's gone up into this area. This is the early hours of the, of the night. Okay, everything that takes place now is horrid. There's three trials that will take place now, okay? But they have to be done quickly. This has to be speedy. Why, why is there haste? If you look at the story, we're going to show the passion tonight. He's showing at our house, if you're interested. It's from 8 o'clock this evening, finished around 10. There's an open invitation if you want to come over and watch it with us. And that film, The Passion, captures something of this pace. Why is all this hurry? There's three trials in the middle of the night at breakneck speed. Why the haste? The Sabbath is coming. The Passover, and all that they know, what happens if it's daylight? What, who wakes up in daylight? Who's going to be around in daylight? If you want Dick Jesus, popular with the crowds, executed, what have you got to do? You've got to get it done. It's got to be hurried. Whilst they're asleep, whilst the populace doesn't know about it, you've got to get these cases through as quickly as you can, because soon as the crowd hear that Jesus has been arrested, what will happen in Jerusalem? They've been uproar. And so the whole thing is moving along at breakneck speed from person to person to person. They need to execute Jesus rapidly, but it's not so simple. Okay, so in order for him to be executed by using the Romans, there's got to be a reason for it. They have to find a reason why they execute him. So they take him along. Verse 14, Caiaphas was the one who first advised the Jews that it would... It needed the death of one man to spare the people, we're told in verse 14. He wasn't thinking of Jesus somehow dying to save people. His point of view is that we have to kill this guy to spare his doctrine, his teaching, and preserve the people. Now, by this time, Simon is still following him. Verse 15, Simon and another disciple. That's John, the author of this gospel. He always speaks about himself in the third person here as standing outside the story but this is John so so Simon Peter and John follow Jesus because this disciple was known to the high priest he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard but Peter couldn't get in he waited outside at the door all by himself that the others have Judas has betrayed him the others have abandoned him John is there in the background Peter is left outside and the focus moves to Peter why? Why is the camera uh, shot moved to Peter? Because he's going to do the unthinkable. The focus is on this leading disciple. Okay, the charismatic figure. The focus and the camera comes on Peter. He's left outside. He's the one who chops the ear of the high servant, uh, of, the, of the servant there. Okay, he's the one who's always first. He's the one who promised Jesus that on the pain of death, he would do what? That he would stand for Jesus. So the focus goes on Peter. Okay, Peter, here's your hour. You're the one. A few hours earlier, promising, swearing, insisting that if push comes to shove and that if his life is in danger, he will stand for Jesus. So the camera's on Jesus. This is your hour, Peter. 
This is your moment. Show us what a fantastic leader you are. How you, over everyone else, will stand loyal to Jesus. And so there he is. He's waiting outside. Verse 16. Okay, a, a girl comes up who's on duty and speaks, okay, there, and, and, and says in verse 17, Are you not one of his disciples? Are you? Are you are not one of his disciples, are you? And Peter, at his moment to excel, does what? So un, unimaginable. If he was someone else, maybe, but listen, and he, he responds, I am not. Peter begins to deny Jesus. He's the first of three painful disciples. In verse 19, we're told, Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. You can see why they're questioning him about his disciples because they don't just want Jesus' head. Their concern is that he so indoctrinated these 11 now, that what is likely to happen even when they've got shot of, of Jesus? Yeah. And so they want to know, you know, what have you been teaching them? What are you planning? You know, what are they going to do? How many can we expect? You know, what have you organized? We, knew, we know you've been apprehending this moment. What have you set in motion? Who are they? Give us their names. Give us their descriptions. So that, they're, that, they're, that they're pressing him in order in order to be able to ensure they can fully quash this potential rebellion. But little, little do they know what has happened to the twelve. What has betrayed him? John is somewhere, but nothing more has heard of him. Peter is betraying him. What about the other nine? They've abandoned him. There's no need to worry that there's going to be any revolt. They've all gone. Uh, they've abandoned him. And this is, this is a testimony to Christianity. Christianity is the largest, greatest religion on the face of the planet. Jesus is a name known by more people than any other name. Christianity has at least a billion adherents in some form. But on this night, there wasn't a single person who was, who was giving any allegiance to Jesus. Something incredible must have happened between that hour and the hour when these people began to die one by one for Jesus. Something incredible, something beyond human reasoning. So we're told then in verse 20 uh, how Jesus talks to them. He says, look, I've, I've been speaking in public. I've said nothing in secret. Ask those who've heard me. Can you see what he's trying to do? He's trying to protect his disciples. His point is, look, I'm not you know, stirring these 12 up with some secret truths. Everything I've spoken to the 12, I've spoken in public. There's nothing that I've got to hide. There's nothing there. In fact, I guess he's saying, you don't have to worry. I've taught these people nothing in secret. There's no planned rebellion. They're not waiting outside to turn this court upside down. And so he's working on behalf of his disciples. In verse 22, we're told in response to this that they struck him in the face. I want you to think about this. Who struck who? Who struck who? Who's been struck? God. God, who's striking him? He's created beings. Do you see what's happening here? God has so humiliated himself that he's allowed himself to be in the presence of his subject, his created beings. 
we're just made. Look, let me deflate any egos that are here. You're just made, okay? You're just made. But this is God. Here he is. Here he is. Being struck by those that he made. Okay, this is just bewildering. And, and it's voluntary. He's allowing this to happen. It's, it's humiliation beyond what we could imagine. And I want you to imagine too. So this is God. Who's standing with him? I know no one can see, but who's standing with him? This is God, remember. Who's standing next to him? And how many? No one physically? But Jesus is God. Who's standing there with him? Who's there with him? And how many legions of angels? How many? What did Jesus say? Don't you think I can call? Who do you think is standing behind me? If they could see, what would they have seen? Millions upon millions of angelic forces, armed soldiers on guard. So that the minute Jesus gives a hint to them, what would they have done? They would have, they would have wiped out the assembly. They're waiting, their eyes fixed on Jesus, looking for that one glimpse, that one motion, and they would have wiped out this kangaroo court. But it never came. It never came. Jesus opens himself to betrayal and, and humiliation. And how does this look to the angels that worship him? To the humiliation of being struck by one he had created. The hand that struck him. Jesus designed and manufactured. And at that very moment that he struck him, Jesus' power was enabling this heart to beat, to pump blood to the muscles in order to enable it to have motion, to commit these grosses of offenses, to raise a hand against its creator. It's unfathomable, isn't it? It's, it's incomprehensible. It's why Christianity stands apart from any other religion on the globe. In verse 21, we're told that Ananias sent him then to Caiaphas, the high priest. He then questions him, getting nowhere. Finally, we, we move to verse 25, when Peter again is given a second opportunity. Look, we fail. Look, we do, don't we? But we often get second chances. This is Peter's second opportunity to, to stand for Jesus. He's asked again, are you not one of his disciples? You think that by now he would have understood something of what he's doing? But the second time, listen to this, the second time, he denied it, saying, I am not adamant. And then the third time, okay, again, okay, they challenge him, okay, and Peter responds for the third moment, and people, would you join me now and, and, and continue from here? For the third moment, he denies Jesus, and at that moment, a cock began to crawl. Thank you.
truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Your Honour, my name is Tame, and I am a servant in the house of Caiaphas. I was carrying logs from the wood pile to the fire in the courtyard. People were gathering, and it was cold that night. A few minutes earlier, soldiers had taken Jesus into the house. I waited until things had quietened down, and then I noticed Simon Peter slipped into the courtyard. I could see that he was distressed. Caiaphas was no friend of Jesus, nor of any associated with him. And if they could come at night to try the Nazarene, well, it meant that the law had been set aside. At least on this occasion, Your Honor. I recognize Simon Peter, as would half Jerusalem at that time. For wherever Jesus went, there was Peter. <laughs> Loud and assured. She seemed so proud that Jesus had chosen him. <coughs> I heard later Jesus was arrested, that, that Peter defended him with a sword. Yes, I recognized him a lot. He had a certain notoriety. And um, he was a real man, if you know what I mean. <laughs> he set many a lady's heart a flutter. Oh, I I'm sorry, Your Honor. By this time, several people had gathered around the fire, including Simon Peter. I added the logs that I had brought, and I spoke to them. I wanted to know what was going on. You were with Jesus of Nazareth, weren't you? They said. But he denied it. He said he didn't know what I was talking about. And then he stood up and he moved over to the courtyard gate. Shaking. Naomi, another servant, called after him. I'm sure you were with Jesus. Simon Peter heard her. And although he swore before us all that he did not know him, eventually his eyes betrayed him. Pete, one of the men sitting by the fire, shouted, I know you are a follower of this rabbi from Nazareth. Besides, your accent gives you away. Then I saw the panic in Peter's face. There were soldiers everywhere. He came back to the fire, cursing and swearing. Everyone turned round and looked at him. I tell you, I do not know the man, he said. In that moment, a clock showed. And for a few seconds, there was silence. And then the soldiers brought Jesus from the house. And he saw Peter standing there. And in that moment, their eyes met. And in the flickering light of the fire, I could see the tears streaming down Peter's face. And then that strong
soul was fulfilled. What Jesus prophesied about Peter, that before a cock crows that night, he, as the leader of the group, would deny Jesus three times. Peter sinned terribly against Jesus. It was unforgivable. And yet there was forgiveness for Peter. He was coming. It was coming just ahead of him. But in just a few hours, we're going to hear, and, and Pippa's going to just read for us chapter 19. In just a few hours, Jesus will be hung to a cross, left to die. And in that death, the betrayal of Judas will be appeased. His guilt and sin wiped clean, forgotten, paid for, and remembered no more. That is what the cross is about. That's what we're looking at together this morning. That the death of Jesus wipes clean our slate. Not by God just turning a blind eye to sin. Jesus didn't turn a blind eye to what Peter did to him. Jesus paid the consequence of Peter's betrayal. And in his death, paid the consequence of every one of our betrayals. Every time we, we, we put Jesus second to our, own, to our own choice and our own decisions, we betray him afresh like Peter. But his death wipes the slate clean. It's what we're going to remember shortly. Jesus forgave Peter because he paid for his sin. We receive forgiveness because Jesus pays for our sin, appeases God's wrath, and makes peace between us and him. I think we'll stop there. We're going to look at the crowd. But we'll leave you.